I want you to take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, to Psalm chapter 33, Psalm 33. God's word says this, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together. As a heap, he lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people who he chooses for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the nations of men. From his dwelling place he looks out at all, on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Tonight we're going to turn our attention here to this great psalm, this 33rd psalm, uh, the book of Psalms being rightly called by many the is, uh, Israel's hymn book because so many of the psalms uh, are national, nationalistic or individualistic, written from a perspective of uh, Jewish or Israeli experience as a nation or personal experiences of uh, individuals, uh, writers such as David. Speaking of uh, victories or defeats, uh, uh, according to the nation or in reference to the nation. Obviously, the Psalms are considered by many to be one of the most blood portions of the scripture. Uh, Again, a gathered uh, collection of spirit-inspired worship songs, uh, considered by many to be the bedrock of comfort of the tower of strength for believers in every experience of life, from heights of praise to the rendering depths of despair. And all of the full range of emotions that are in between that are captured, again, in these magnificent songs, inspired songs of praise. Now, the Psalms are written to help guide us as believers to a proper focus, a proper worship of God, because that's what our greatest need is. We all need to have a great view of God, a proper understanding of the person of God, and therefore we can worship him appropriately. Every one of us living in this world, living in a fallen world, every one of us is dealing with some kind of issue or struggle on some level, some of them severe, some of them just the ordinary issues and affairs of life in a fallen world. Uh, Therefore, it's very easy for us in the course of our day, in the 
events of life to get our focus off God and onto the circumstances around us, our circumstances, our situations. And in doing so, I think it's also very easy to fall into the trap of believing the Bible is somewhat of a self-help book, so to speak, so that <clears throat> excuse me, we can open up to find the answer to our struggle or our perceived need of the day, when the reality is the Bible needs to be the very center of everything in our life. And the reality is we need to let the Bible speak as what it says and speak for itself, but then listen to what it says above all else, rather than saying, I have this problem and I'm going to turn to the Scripture to find it, find a fix for my issue. The difference between the two, I think, is dramatic because one's man-centered and the other one is God-focused. So I would suggest to you that as living in a fallen world, as creatures in a fallen world, our focus, our view, our understanding of God is altogether insufficient. And we all need a greater uh, vision of God, a greater view of God. Uh, we need a, all of us need a greater understanding of who he is, then uh, a greater trust in him and who he is. And then we need to praise him accordingly. And I think the Psalms help us do that. <clears throat> we are all at least, uh, at least somewhat familiar with uh, Luther. And on October 31st, 1517, posted his 95 theses there on the door of the castle door of Württemberg, uh, to, and that ignited the, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we know that in history, we know how he took up the Book of Romans, and that's really what opened his heart to understand the truth, his mind to the truth of justification. He came to a proper understanding of the just shall live by faith. So Romans gave him really rise to his great doctrinal understanding. Uh, Romans formulated his doctrinal convictions about the gospel, but it was actually the book of Psalms that really encouraged him to keep persevering. It, it was his uh, study of the book of Psalms that instilled with him such a high view of God. It developed within him, as one author says, a devil-defying boldness to stand alone against the world for the truth and the gospel of God's grace. So Romans gave him a theological understanding of justification, but it was the book of Psalms that gave him an unconquerable spirit, an indomitable will to trust God in the bold proclamation of the truth, no matter what might happen to him. And when Luther, as you probably are familiar, when Luther became discouraged or in despair or suffered bouts of depression in his battle with Rome and the Roman church during the days of the Reformation, when he felt like the entire world was against him, he would turn to his beloved uh, co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Come, Philip, let us sing the Psalms. And as you know, he often turned to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Obviously, that psalm inspired him to write which many consider to be the greatest hymn of the church, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So it was a deeper understanding of God, a deeper understanding of uh, Psalm 46 that gave Luther boldness and the confidence that he needed to continue in this time of difficulty, in this time of defending and fighting for the faith when the entire religious establishment stood against him. And reflecting on the psalm, he said, God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church uh, in, in his word against all the fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So it was the Psalms that encouraged the heart of Luther to look up. It was the Psalms that encouraged the heart of Luther to look up and to have great confidence in the person of God, no matter what happened to him, and no matter his circumstance. 
It was the Psalms, although the earth should move and the mountains should shake and the seas roar and foam as a uh, result of the great upheaval. It was the Psalms for those who trust in God. Right, The Psalms pointed to the person of God, to trust in God, to understand him, to know him. And it's the Psalms that made him immovable because the Psalms took him to the immovable God that never changes. And I think what you see in Psalm 33 is an acknowledgement and then a response to that truth. And how unbroken, incessant praise should characterize the lives of God's people. The heart of worship the heart of worship should be at, at the very center of all we do in all that we understand. It's hard to preach in the modern world, isn't it? <laughs> Silence your phone and you're trying and you can't because it's Demonic. (laughs) Amen. And that's the tech guy leaving the room that can't get his phone to shut off. In Psalm 33, what you have is an acknowledgement and response to the truth. How unbroken, incessant praise really should characterize the lives of God's people. The heart of worship really should be at the very center of all that we do and understand and know as we understand our God and declare our trust in his sovereign control over everything. Therefore, praise really should control us. Praise should fill our hearts and our lives and our mouths as we get our perspective off of ourselves and out of the person of God who, again, is worthy of our worship. And while the Psalms do indeed deal with our life in a fallen world, the Psalms, nor any scripture for that matter, are really not preoccupied with life and our earthly life or our earthly struggles. The preoccupation of the Scripture is God. The preoccupation of the Scripture is the glory of God, the glory of Christ. The Bible in general and the Gospel specifically points us away from ourselves and to an eternal perspective on things. It's the Word of God that points us to the transcendent God who dwells outside the realm of time, the eternal God who lived in eternity past, as the scripture points us to the person of God who's high and lifted up, glorified on his throne, ruling and reigning over the affairs of the world of men in time. And he will rule and reign over the eternal future. So rightly, the focus, when you go to the scripture, the focus comes off of us and puts squarely on him. And our response should be to this God, this transcendent God, it should be our praise. Now, as we turn our attention to Psalm 33, uh, the psalm is entirely focusing on the person of God. The psalmist speaks to the person of God, and, and what the psalmist does is he causes us and commands us to worship this God. He really calls us to set aside the issues of our day, to leave behind earthly preoccupations, to leave aside our concerns for the world and where it's headed, and to focus on God, to focus on our sovereign God, to focus on his glory. Puritan Thomas Brooks once said this, he said, The sovereignty of God is that golden scepter in his hand by which he will make all bow, either by his word or by his works, by his mercies or by his judgments. So again, at the very heart of worship is God. At the very heart of worship is a clear declaration of God and his sovereignty. 
over everything. And again, the Psalms call us, uh, uh, the, the righteous, to singing, to worshiping, to praising the Lord. And then to give him thanks for his absolute sovereign control over the entirety of life, over the entire earth. Now, we don't know who the author of the psalm is, uh, nor the specific events that uh, prompted the writing of the psalm. There's much speculation on both of them. Psalm 33 is only one of four psalms in the first book of the psalms, which is Psalm 1 through 41, without a superscription. The other untitled psalms are Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and Psalm 10, which has led some to believe that perhaps Psalm 33 at one time was part of Psalm 32, just as some believe Psalm 2 was once a part of Psalm 1 and Psalm 9 part of, or Psalm 10 part of, uh, of Psalm 9. Now, whether they were one Psalm or two uh, placed uh, uh, together at some point, obviously the arranger of the Psalter felt that there was some connection between the two. So some have suggested that Psalm 32 uh, that describes the joy of a person who's confessed their sin and has had their sin forgiven and restored. Therefore, it would be natural for a person now to stop and praise God. It would be natural to praise him, to thank him, and that's what Psalm 33 does. Uh, because obviously a person who's experienced forgiveness of sin should be a thankful individual. If you wanted, you could look up there and kind of see, I think, a, kind of a, a little bit of a connection there between Psalm 32 uh, 11, the last verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in Psalm 32, then the beginning of Psalm 31. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Sing for joy, verse 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming the upright. So whether they were connected or separate, there's a possibility they were at one time one psalm. The focus on Psalm 33 really is praising God for his word and for his works. It's to focus on the creation and to focus on the deliverance of, uh, by God of his people from their enemies. The underlying issue, I think, in the psalm is to praise God for who he is, to praise him for his attributes, both his sovereignty and both his unfailing, both his sovereignty and his unfailing love or, or his loving kindness. It's mentioned several times, verse 5, verse 18, verse 22. Because, again, if the psalms go together, then the one who's been forgiven by God will rightly be overtaken by the attribute of God's mercy, his loving kindness towards them. So the psalm begins like this, with just a straightforward call to worship. And it's a call to worship, and a call to worship with joy. Verse 1, sing for joy in the Lord, you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing with praises, or sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So when we rightly place our attention on God, really gladness, joy should be the response. Joy, gladness, and joy and gladness really should be the response of the greatness of the person of God. And again, you'll notice there in that opening segment there that the psalmist calls the people of God to enter into this activity. Not the world in general, but the people of God. They're to respond to God in joy and to sing to him. It's interesting, in that section I just read, there's a number of imperatives in this opening call to worship that the psalmist employs, and they are what the righteous are to do or how the righteous are to perform this worship as they worship and praise God. They are to sing joyfully. They are to praise him, give him thanks, 
Sing praises. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and then with a shout of joy. This is how the people of God are to worship their God. This is how they're to worship him, how they're to thank him. With, with, they're to do it joyfully, skillfully, loudly, with instrument and voice. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praises becoming the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. It's actually the first psalm that mentions musical instruments to be used to stir the heart in its praise of God because the Bible permits the use of instruments. There are some people that perhaps you're familiar with come from certain backgrounds that think that uh, musical instruments are impermissible in worship. That's not what the psalm says. And obviously, if you've been here for a while, you understand here at Cornerstone Bible Church, we primarily use the piano. We're not opposed to other instruments. So if you can play one, let Bruce know. He'll put you to work. We use the organ sometimes, which I appreciate because I love the sound of the organ. But what we do here is we emphasize the corporate aspect of worship. We emphasize corporate singing, where our voices really become the driving force behind the music, behind our, behind our singing. We predominantly, as you know, sing hymns because they elevate doctrinal truth. It points us again to the persons of God in Christ. And we sing loudly here, right, and right, rightfully so. Every person in the congregation comes and are committed to worship through voice, are committed to be obedient to the command of Scripture, as it says in Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So corporate singing is an integral part of true worship, which, again, every person who's part of our fellowship is committed to, to be a part of that, to the loud projection of our voices, expressing our thanks and our gratitude to God from our heart. We don't mumble here. We, we aren't blown over by the, the band on the stage. We actually hear each other sing. And that's an encouragement, right? We sing from, for, with joy from our heart. And the idea that the psalmist says here we should sing with a new psalm in verse 3, directed towards God, is I think that the new song is, is the song of the heart that is transformed by faith in the persons of God in Christ. Suggesting that perhaps the old song was the songs we would sing before we came to faith in Christ. Uh, worldly songs, meaningless songs, earthly, man-centered songs that reject or that reflect the heart of the fallen writer. But a new song is a heavenly song. It's an eternal song. A God-centered song that is uh, re- reflective of a redeemed heart. A new song sung on new occasions with new impulses to express our praise to God. And every song that we sing and every song that we sing praises God, uh, comes uh, from or emerges from a, a renewed heart that, again, is thankful, that rejoices in God's goodness, that is filled with joy and awareness of God's grace in our life. And I want to go back and just think about this issue a little bit more, draw our attention to the use of imperatives, because I said there's a number of them, and I read them to you in this opening call to worship. And I think we've got to get a handle around this, because I think it's very helpful. Obviously, the imperative is in the mood of command. But what you need to understand and what we need to see is what the imperative does. The imperative calls us out of our daily lives. The the imperative commands us to come out of our personal preoccupation with self, to come out of dealing with our issues, our struggles, our problems, and it intentionally focuses our attention upward on God. It commands us to come out of this fallen world and the 
daily lives of fallen people around us and the problems, and then to come into the realm of worship, where we are responding to God, singing for joy, praising Him, giving thanks to Him. And again, the use of repeated imperatives is a call to exuberant loudness and driving our worship. Again, the imperative is the mood of command. It's not the mood of suggestion. It's the mood of command. It doesn't say do this if. It doesn't say do this if you feel like it. It doesn't say, okay, don't do it now. Do it when you get around to it. Do it when your life is going better. It's not what it says. It's the mood of command. The command is right now in the presence of God to sing praises to him. Whatever the issues are around you. To give praises to God, to thank him, to honor him with a loud, joyful voice. With hearts full of thanksgiving. That's how we're to approach God. With joy, with gladness, with shouts of singing and praise. Now the scripture doesn't just command us, it does do that, but it gives us the reason for the command. Because when you understand the reason behind the command to praise, it changes our focus and it changes our heart. And it drives us to what is really important or probably more accurately, it drives us to who is really important. It drives us to the persons of God in Christ. So what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to begin to start to give a list of reasons to cause us to rejoice, to cause us to worship God. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praises becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises <clears throat> to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Verse 4, the next word four, F-O-R, four. Here's the reason. Four. Here's why we should do this. Here's why we should obey these imperative commands to worship God. Here's the ground of our praise. Here's the reason for our praise. Here's the cause of our rejoicing. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice on the earth and the earth is full of his loving kindness or some translations say steadfast love. The earth is full of the love, the loving kindness of the Lord. The, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So the psalmist begins by saying we should sing praises loudly to the Lord with a shout of joy because of his word. Right? Because of his word and because of his work. His works. Right? His word. For the word of the Lord is upright. That means that everything God says is true. Everything God says is right. Everything that God commands is perfect. Everything that God says in his word can be trusted because he's the God of faithfulness. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now, if you have the, new, if you have the King James, it says all his works are done in truth. All his work is done in faithfulness. All his work is done in truth. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord or, again, the steadfast love of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. That's our God. Our God is the God of truth. Our God is the God who can be trusted in everything he says. Our God is the God who loves righteousness. Our God is the God who loves justice. Our God is the God who's faithful, the God who's merciful, the God who is loving, kind, loving and kind, right? He, he is a merciful God. Now, isn't it good when we open the, the Bible 
to believe the fact that God's word is true, right? Aren't we encouraged by that? Everything we read, we know is true because it comes from the truthful God. And we love the fact that we can trust him in everything that he says. We love the fact that we have absolute confidence in him. Confidence in God born by the Spirit through his word that says that he will always be faithful to me. He'll always be faithful to me in the end, no matter what happens to me in this life, no matter what has happened to me in my past, no matter what sorrows or troubles or problems or issues or sin that I'm even that I've committed or now am trying to navigate through right now presently in my life. The Lord has promised he will never leave me or forsake me. The Lord has promised me that nothing will ever separate me from his love. That's reason to praise him, isn't it? That's reason to shout for joy because his word is truthful. Our God is who he is, and we praise him for that. We worship him, we honor him, we adore him, we, we thank him. He is true. He is faithful. He is good. He is righteous. Amen. And he loves, amen, and he loves righteousness, right? He loves justice. Listen, this world hates righteousness, and this world mocks justice. We live in a time where we've completely abandoned any kind of objective standards, a time where we have abandoned truth. We've abandoned any kind of standard of morality. Our children, for the most part, aren't taught in anything about right or wrong anymore. They have no knowledge of that. Therefore, they're easy prey for the wicked. Easy prey for the perverted. And man, having abandoned the word of God, has abandoned objective truth. Therefore, there's no truth outside of man. Now man stands as the reference. Man stands as the standard of truth. Therefore, you see exactly what you see. Everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes. And what you see around us is the result of that catastrophe and fallen thinking, complicated by the wrath of God and his abandonment, God giving men over to the depravity of their fallen minds. What you see in the world around us is utter moral chaos. There is no moral compass. There is no moral standard. Perversion runs rampant. And the rejection of the biblical standard of male and female, the biblical standard of marriage, again, the perversion of those things, the sexualization of our children, the sexual mutilation of our children, and the promotion of that by people in our government, it just goes on and on. The wickedness, the chaos reigns in a world of fallen men who rejected the truth. Wickedness and chaos reigns in a world of fallen men who have abandoned God's standard. The word of God that he has provided for life and godliness in this world. That's the world of men, but our God doesn't change. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice on the earth. Right? In the earth, the entire earth is full of of his love, his loving kindness. The entire earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And that truth gives us tremendous hope and encouragement as we focus our heart on him. That again, no matter what our circumstances are in life, no matter how sin or sinners are working around us in their depravity and their polluted nature in the world around us, God's above all of it. God transcends it. God is the ultimate holy God. The infinitely good, infinitely true, just God who loves me. The one who has called himself to me. 
the one who's blotted out my sin as far as the east is from the west because of his tremendous love and the substitutionary sacrifice of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven. Right now, I'm redeemed by grace, taken from being aliens and strangers, and now been brought into the family of God and fame, the, the, the family of Christ, made a son, a daughter, loved by the Eternal One. The entire earth is full of the loving kindness of our Lord. Right? And we see it in our lives, right? We see it in our lives. We see it all around us. The mercy of God. And that's another reason to shout for joy. That's another reason to praise God, to worship Him. For the word of the Lord is upright. All His work is done in faithfulness. Again, all His work is done in truth. And again, that means whatever God says He's going to do, He'll do. He'll faithfully make it happen. His counsel stands forever. His plans can never be thwarted. He is unchangeable. And that gives us great encouragement in a troubled world that is always changing. And when we are obedient to the command to praise him, it allows us to look up from our issues and our struggles and the problems that we have in a fallen world, and it allows us to get a proper perspective. A perspective that is no longer dominated by a fallen world. A perspective that is no longer dominated by our circumstances. A perspective that is no longer dominated by the wicked world around us. And while it's true we do live in a fallen world, a wicked world, when we refuse to worship, when we are dominated and controlled by life and lies of the world around us and the lies of our own fallen nature... When we choose to be in that realm, we become even more troubled. But when we look up, right? When we look up, when we intentionally and obediently enter into the realm of worship and praise, when we intentionally bring our minds and hearts in submission to the truth, to the word of God, when we reflect on him and his character, his nature, his attributes, then our spirits start to rise up and our hearts begin to soar. Because when we go up and worship, then our perspective changes. When we focus our attention on our good God and intentionally worship him and respond to him with thankfulness and joy, our perspective becomes right. It gets corrected. And then we have hope. And then we have joy. Because now we're in his presence. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming the upright. Give thanks to the Lord for the, uh, with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So not only do we worship the Lord with joy and with gladness, because of his word, because of his work, because his truthfulness, his character, his love for righteousness, his love for justice, goodness, loving kindness, his steadfast love, his mercy. Not only do we come into his presence with joy and gladness, but we come into his presence worshiping him with reverence. Meaning we have great, we have an understanding of the greatness of our God. And that understanding of the greatness of our God should cause us to flee from any kind of casual approach to him in worship. It's far too much casual approaching of God in worship in the day in which we live. He's not your homeboy. He's not your buddy, your friend. He's the God of the universe. He needs to be treated with reverence. 
we approach it, our God with reverence in a fashion that is, has, uh, that is not unworthy of his supremacy because he is the supreme one. He's the author of life, the, the giver of life, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who rules over all. He is the one who's absolute sovereign. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters from the, of the sea together as a heap and lays the deeps in the storehouses. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. This means that he created, the Latin term is ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. Everything that exists comes into existence by the power of his word, which again speaks to his greatness, which again speaks to his power, his supremacy. He's the God who speaks and it's done. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all all their hosts, he gathers the waters together as a heap, he lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Now, obviously, it's a, a echo out of uh, Genesis chapter 1. Again, the fact that God is, the God is the creator of the world. And if he created the world, and he did, if he created it by the power of his word, that means, listen, he is also in control of it. Which leads us to the truth of God's providential rule over this world, which the Psalmist is going to develop here in verses 10 through 12. He rules. He's the creator, not men. He rules, not men. He, right? he, he is the one who created it by his word. He is the one who's in control. Of it. He's the all-powerful one. He made everything. He made everything, the world, the universe, and everything that's in it. And if he spoke all of it into existence by just the power of his word... That means that he is infinitely different from and infinitely superior to and more powerful than any mere human being. And more powerful than anything that a human being can do. That's why the psalmist rightly interjects verse 8 when he says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, it was done, he commanded it stood fast. Men need to rightly fear the Lord. Right? And that's a large part of the problem in the world. Nobody fears the Lord. Everybody thinks they're their own God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and fools despise wisdom and knowledge. We're run, this country is run by fools. Many of them. Men need to rightly fear the Creator, their Creator, the one who has power both over their life and over their eternal destiny. That's why the Lord Jesus said in the New Testament in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to get our information from people who are wise, not people who are fools. People who don't know the Lord, people who refuse to bow their knee to the Lord, they're fools. They despise wisdom. Oh, the world likes to puff them up, put them on TV, give them a talk show or a news hour or whatever. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. 
we need to rightly fear the Lord. Men need to rightly fear the Lord because he's the all-powerful one. He is the sovereign, the supreme one. Again, so powerful by the word, his word, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters together in the sea, together as a heap. He lays them up in deeps, lays up the deeps in storehouses. He creates by the power of his word everything. He takes the oceans, the seas, as it were, in his hands. And again, that should cause men rightly to fear him. That should cause men rightly to treat him with reverence. And that should cause us who do know him as our Lord and Savior to fall before him in humble worship, right? Because of who he is. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. There's no power greater than him. There's no one thwarting his will. There's no one challenging his purposes because he's the one from which everything comes. He's the ultimate source of all things in life. He is actually the source of life itself. When he created, there was no one there to give him counsel. When he created, there was no men there. He didn't need help from men. He creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in it by divine fiat, by his own will, by his own power, out of his own wisdom. Again, he's the one who controls all of it. He's the one who made it. He's the one who sustains it. That's our God. High, exalted, above men. There is no one like him. Absolute power is resident within him. Far beyond anything that men can think or contemplate or comprehend. So great is this majestic, holy, wonderful, sovereign creator God who we have the great privilege of calling our Father. That's him. Therefore, rightly, the object of our joyful worship, our praise, our reverential awe. Again, in the absolute arrogance of puny fallen men who think that they can do something with God's creation before God is done with it. The arrogance of the fallen mind of fallen depraved men to quote-unquote save the planet. That's absolute nonsense. It's beyond nonsense. All the green energy stuff. It's nothing more than foolishness and folly of the men who refuse to submit themselves to the sovereign, of which the Bible speaks of him as a consuming fire to his adversaries. But we, again, who have tasted the loving kindness, we sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the God. We obey these imperatives. He's our God. He's the one who's loved us eternally. He's the one who's loved us in time. He's the one who's promised that nothing will ever separate us from his love. And since he's our God and he's in charge, we know that it causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him, those are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren whom he predestined he called and whom he called he justified whom he justified he glorified what shall we say to these things of God's force the sovereign of the universe who's against us if he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us how will he not all with him freely give us all things who will bring a charge against God's Elect, God is the one who justifies, who's the one who condemns. 
Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather who was raised, is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's why the verse in Romans 8 becomes so tremendous when you understand who God is. There's no one like him. And he's our God. He's our Father. Therefore, rightly, we should shout with joy. Right? We should worship him with reverence. We should be thankful for his word, for his truthfulness, for his faithfulness. We should praise him for his works, for his righteousness, for his justice. We should praise him for the power of his word, the creative power of his word. And we should praise him for his providence. Verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Again, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The world is full, as I said this morning, the world is full of rebellion. Of fallen men and their rebellion against God. Fallen men and their rebellion against God who devise their plans their schemes. But listen, in the end, only the will of the Lord is going to be accomplished. In the end, only the will of the Lord is going to be accomplished. So again, that tells us as God's people, we don't have to worry about anything. We don't have to be fearful about anything. Did I say this morning that the world... The spirit of the world is fear. Fear of virus that you can't see. Fear this, fear that. It's God's people, we don't need to be fearful. When one fear is starting to wane, then the news media pumps up another one. This virus, that thing. Oh, boy, the, the, the military stuff is going on around the world. We should be really scared about that. Look at all the hostile regimes in the world. Iran, uh, North Koreans, the Russians, Chinese, the radicals of uh, Islam, even our own government, which is probably something to be fearful of, but we won't address that, right? Our own foolishness. But ultimately, when you look at men and the rulers of the nations, the military powers, they're not ultimately in charge. God is. Our God is. Our good God, our caring God, our loving God. The one who has made great sacrifice on a personal level for us that we might be redeemed and brought into his family. We're not called to worry, but we're called to trust. To trust him because he's the one who's in control of all things. He's the one who's in control of time and history. The psalmist says, Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's a picture of sovereign rule. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So again, we're not called to be fearful. We're called to trust. To know that his will will dominate. His final word will be carried out. It will come to pass exactly as he has determined it will come to pass because he's in control of all things. He is the one who's under providential, or he is the ruler of providence. He's the one who's in providential control of all things. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. Again, men in their great wickedness always act wickedly. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Men in their great wickedness conspired against the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. Their plan was to murder him. Listen, their plan was to murder him. God's plan was to raise him from the dead. Amen? God's plan was to raise him from the dead. 
so that he might be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for men who would repent and place their faith in him so that God might grant, be able to grant forgiveness of sin so that God might be able to put his mercy and his loving kindness, his graciousness on display. Counsel, the Lord stands forever. Plans of his heart from generation to generation. Again, let me tell you what that means. It means you can go to bed at night, go to sleep, not worry about anything. Because whatever happens in the world as it continues to unfold us around us, it's all part of his plan. It's all part of his plan, his purpose for the ages. There's nothing that happens that's not a part of his divine plan. It's our God who determines determines what takes place in the world. It's our God that determines what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heavens and in the earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth that are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will, and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? We should be comforted greatly by the fact that our God is in control of all things. We should rest in his providential control. And then trust him again to realize that whatever's going on in our life, he's going to make all things work together for our good and for his glory. So having spoken of God's providence and God's frustrating the hostile plans of wicked people and nations, he's firmly establishing his own good pleasure for his people. The psalmist turns his attention to the special care that God has of his people. He gives a word of blessing, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Now in the context, it's the nation of Israel. Can't be anybody else. It's the nation of Israel. And the psalmist is saying, look how blessed they are, how blessed the nation of Israel is because they have been chosen by God for his own inheritance. They've been chosen to be an object of his blessing. Blessing. They have been elect by him. They are the elect nation. Verse 12 cannot strictly apply to be applied to any other nation but the nation of Israel. The Bible does say elsewhere that righteousness exalts a nation. So even an ungodly nation can be blessed by God because there are godly ones in it. But the United States is not Israel. Certainly the United States had its beginning in strong Christian roots, roots of the Bible, truth, God's truth, Puritans having a very strong influence in our nation's founding. And at one point, a long time ago, there was a large number of people in the country that actually believed God, believed his word, they sought him, they loved him, they wanted to serve him, and God blessed the nation with peace and prosperity. But now they are only a remnant. Because God has been rejected. God has been completely thrown out of every public forum. Therefore, we are a nation under judgment. Because we've rejected God. We've abandoned God. We've declared our independence from God. 
And as I tell you often, God has returned the favor by abandoning this country to its own choices and to its own depravity. And one day this country will face final judgment as a nation because God is the one who sets the boundaries. God is the one who sets the times, the boundaries of all the nations in the past, and likewise he's going to do so with this nation. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, Acts 17, verse 26, at one moment or at some moment when God's through with this nation, it's going to be over. It'll be no more. So while we're thankful to be a part of this nation, you better not put your trust in this nation. You better not put your hope in this country. Better put our hope in God and Him alone. No matter what the structure of this civilization, quote unquote, that we're living in. Now, while it's true that the nation of Israel is blessed by God because He is their God, it's also true that God is God over all. He doesn't have the same blessed, loving relationship with the pagan nations as He does with the nation of Israel, but nevertheless, He does rule over them. And He knows exactly what they're doing always. Verse 13 The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. That, by very definition, is omniscience. God knows all, right? He knows everything. He has all knowledge. Those verses, by very definition, are definition of omnipresence. The fact that he's present everywhere. He's the all-present, all-knowing God. He sees everything. He knows everything meaning there's nowhere that you can flee from him. And while it's true that God watches over the wicked and knows their heart, the primary purpose of the psalm really is to encourage the hearts of the righteous to sing, to be encouraged by who their God is. So I think in those verses, while it's true that God's watching over the wicked, I think he's also, uh, the psalmist is saying, look, there's a certain sense of encouragement that we should take from that fact that God knows everything. If there's nothing hidden from him, no one hidden from him. Again, it's another demonstration of his power that should cause us to trust him because he is present everywhere. You don't have to pray, God be with us. He is. We, we don't have to inform him of our circumstances. He already knows it. He's well aware of our situation because he knows all, he sees all. But again, it's only those people who align themselves with this God and his revealed plans that are going to know the fullness of his inheritance, the blessing of forgiveness of sin, and the righteousness given as a gift by grace through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, blessed are those people who's the nation whose God is the Lord. Verse 16, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. Verse 17, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. It's just another acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. Men think very highly of themselves. They think very highly of them, uh, uh, of uh, the size of their armies. I don't know if you saw it this last week. I love airplanes. I got kids that are pilots. They rolled out some really cool stealth bombers. Man, that was cool. We got eight of them. But the truth is, God's more powerful. Again, all power, all the power in the world of men and nations is ultimately futile. 
before the God who reigns and rules and created the universe by the power of his word. Again, if God can speak the entire universe into existence, there's no power like him. The greatest army in the history of the world could never thwart or stop the plans and purposes of God. And that's another reason why we should come before him and worship him in reverence. Because he's the all-powerful one. The great one. There's no one or nothing like him that compares to him. And when we are worshiping him, when we are in his presence, we are in the presence of absolute power, absolute knowledge, absolute holiness, which should again cause us to bow in fearful reverence and worship before him. Verse 18, before, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now, obviously, the phrase, the eyes of the Lord, is a metaphor. It's a word picture. It's just another way to express the fact that he cares for you, that he's watching over you, that he's not abandoning you. He's not just casually interested in you. He's very much interested in you. He very much cares for you. That is, he loves you. He always watches over you if you're his. And he always watches over you for your good. He's always at work governing his creation. He's always at work working out the providential details of your life to make sure that they're going in the direction of your good and his glory. That's your God. That's your heavenly father, the one who loves you, the one who cares for you, the one who forgives your sin in Christ, the one who promises to keep you safe forever now and throughout eternity. The all-powerful, all-knowing God who rules over the affairs of humanity the fact that the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope for his loving kindness means, again, you can trust him. And you can trust him always. In all circumstances, all situations. Again, that means you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry. Because your life presently, your life future, are completely safe in the power of of your loving Heavenly Father. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. It's just another way of saying he cares for you always. So in this 33rd Psalm, the psalmist calls us as the the righteous to, to, to look up. Praise the Lord for his word, to praise the Lord for his works, for his perfect attributes, for his faithful deeds. Uh, We're called to worship him, commanded to worship him, to rejoice in his goodness, to shout before him with joy, to come with loud, jubilant exaltation, and to sing before him with a new song. A new song of praise should really emerge from our hearts from every situation that God brings into our life and then uh, an awareness of situations of his grace and kindness should cause us to sing a new song. Called to rejoice in who he is and we're called to rejoice in for what he does and to thank him for what he does. He is again a God who's the God who's faithful, the God who speaks truth, the God who loves righteousness, the God who loves justice, the God whose God whose plans stand forever, because he's the all-powerful creator God who spoke the entire universe into existence. He is the sovereign the controller of providence, the one who rules over the affairs of humanity and nations, 
so that nothing operates contrary to his sovereign plans and purpose. And so that, again, those who align themselves with him will be blessed by him. We who love him, we who adore him, we who worship him. Therefore, again, we're called to trust him. To trust him. Called to rejoice in his goodness and care and to trust him. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Again, life's full of issues, right? Problems, struggles, difficulties, heartaches. And we can choose to be controlled and dominated by the struggle in a fallen world. Or we can make the choice to praise our God. We can make the choice to rejoice in him. We can make the choice to put our trust in him. We can have a confident hope in him because we know of his eternal love that he has demonstrated to us in time. And we can say to our feelings, I am not going to listen to you. We can say to our feelings, I'm going to choose to hope in my God. I'm going to choose to praise him. I'm going to choose to trust him even though I may not understand the difficulties of my life or the circumstances or the heartache of my present situation, yet I'm going to take my stand with him. I'm going to take my stand with his word, with his nature, his character, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. I'm going to take my stand with him and take my stand on his truth, his word. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to listen to your feelings. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to enter into the realm of worship. I'm going to look upward and focus all of my attention upon him with a confident expectation and trust, and I'm going to rejoice in his holy name. Have I told you we need to start speaking to ourselves and stop listening to ourselves? That's what the psalmist is entreating us, begging us, commanding us to do, make a choice. The choice before us is to trust God, worship him with reverence, Stand before him in awe. Thank him for the fact that he is your God, that he has saved you. Thank him that your inheritance is certain and sure in Christ. Your eternal destiny is fixed. No one can thwart his power, his plan, his purposes. Thank him that he is your loving shepherd. He's your master. He's your Lord. He's your father in heaven. The one who sent his son from heaven to earth to stand in our place to pay our penalty to redeem us so that we might stand in his presence blameless, full of joy. Because that's the only place that joy is found in this fallen world. It's in his presence. And we choose to praise him. Amen? What a tremendous psalm, right? What a tremendous God we serve. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for <clears throat> the clear encouragement by the psalmist just to focus on you, to trust you, to be encouraged by a redirection of our sight, not living by our feelings, but living by your truth, by your word, trusting in your character, your nature, your love for us. We praise you. We're so thankful for our opportunity to gather together this day to worship you both in the morning and the evening. So thankful for your word that gives us such great hope. We love you. We're so thankful. Thank you for these dear people, and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen.